land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast, where we're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. Um, so excited to have a good friend in the studio today, Simon Kustemarker. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me on the on the new one as well. Now, if you haven't heard um, Simon talk before, um, I'm surprised. I mean, he's very uh, often a lot of podcasts out there. Um, you'll read about him daily, uh, you know, weekly in New Daily. He's got um, he's in the Australian every month. Um, He's got a quarter of a million followers on Twitter and Facebook. He writes some amazing insights into maps, et cetera, but really he's a demographer. Um, he's a co-founder of the Demographics Group who, with the famous Bernard Salt. Um, and Simon basically travels around Australia and the world and does talks and presentations and um, consults organisations around the importance of demographics. So um, Simon and I have been friends for a number of years. He's come on to the other podcasts I've got uh, many times. And um, today's going to be a really interesting chat. Uh, for us to really unpack the world of demographics and property. They're so interlinked and um, hopefully we can share some of those insights today. So thanks for being here, Simon. It's an absolute pleasure. So um, demographics, um, it's something that I love just reading about and learning about. Um, What is it and, you know, what's a demographer? Uh, Demographics essentially is the study of of people. We try to understand how many people there are, um, why uh, people are where they are, and how many there will be in the future. Um, And there's an obvious link um, to to the property market because um, people need to live somewhere. Um, So when you have a growing country, you need more dwellings, um, and these dwellings need to be provided by somebody. And this is where property investment um, comes in. And of course, you want to understand um, the different life stages uh, that people find themselves in, in order to understand what kind of property might be in high demand where. And you always want to be a couple of years um, ahead in your thinking as a property investor, so that you can have um, properties that are um, attractive for renters, and that uh, of course have a nice um, reselling uh, value um, in a couple of years down the track when you might want to sell the piece. 
Yes, I mean, a lot of people um, focus on, you know, population growth, et cetera. But it's, you know, when you're looking at demographics, it goes so much deeper than that, right? Like it's, what are some of all the different nuances um, that, you know, are changing in our society, right? And and that matter, I guess, towards the property market. Oh, absolutely. So the most, the most obvious um, observation here is about um, life stages. Mm. You find yourselves um, going through different life stages in Australia. You, you obviously get born into a family. You live in wherever that family lives. Um, once the kids become a bit too big and mobile, um, families tend to leave um, the renting cycle behind. They leave their one and two bedroom dwellings behind and they are hunting um, for larger family sized dwellings. Those family sized dwellings aren't usually available in the same suburbs. Um, where they where they lived first. And so once you reach a new life stage, you also shift your geography. And then lots of behaviors um, shift alongside that. Maybe if you, at the moment, for example, we see the big millennial generation, the biggest generation in Australia, people born in the 80s and 90s, they are starting to make babies now. And so they leave their inner hipster, inner city hipster suburbs behind um, because they need three and four bedrooms. And they're not available in the inner city. They're not available even in the middle suburbs. Um, so the new uh, dwelling stock, large dwelling stock, is available on the urban fringe, is available in the regional um, uh, towns around the big cities. So this is where this whole generation moves. So they, of course, then bring their generational values to a new location. And you can, in a sense, say that we are going to hipsterize um, the urban fringe over the coming decade. So that's one of the big life stages that we find ourselves in. Then people tend to cruise a bit in their first family home for a couple of years, um, probably if they can afford to do so. And when the kids are old enough and really need a bit more space, you become an upgrader household. Um, these are quite often people in their 50s um, that, that then upgrade their home. And largely that's okay because you are operating on two incomes in a household. Quite often you had a couple of promotions, so income is reasonably high. Um, that's a, a wonderful market to be operating in. But the banks always look at these people as the most risky property investors um, because they are burning the candles from both ends. You have high costs with a mortgage, you have high costs with the kids, and potentially you need to care for your own parents. Um, and so if one thing goes wrong, um, people foreclose on a mortgage there. And so the, the, the most common um, age group of foreclosing on a mortgage are people in their 50s. It's not young people that got, you know, that got yeah. into it stupid property it's people where something uh, goes wrong further down the track and after this um once the kids leave the house um the discussion starts about downsizing ah you know it's the couple is left in their four bedroom big family home are they downsizing and yes downsizing is a real thing lots of people downsize but overall in australia the narrative around um, downsizing your property is much exaggerated um, overall, you will find the majority of Australians telling you stuff like, I want to be carried out of my family home. Mm. That seems to be the ultimate goal. It's, of course, also the ultimate way of downsizing into that really small box. <laughs> uh, but that, um, that means that the family-sized housing stock only becomes available when the last parent dies, usually the mom, um, because she's younger than dad and she has longer life expectancy. So when she dies the dwelling stock becomes available. And in the 2030s, you'll have all those baby boomers um, 
dying out bit by bit. And then you'll have um, the craziest decade on the Australian housing stock ever will be the 2030s. There'll be so much movement uh, when all the baby boomer homes essentially within a decade enter the market um, and then people snatch them up. Uh, and so there's lots of uh, movement on the market. So don't give up on your property investment journey in the 2020s. Stick around for the 2030s. That'll be a lot of fun. So Simon, there's so many um, good points here to make. I think a lot of people think with the property market is we need more people to come to Australia um, to create more demand. And we're going to talk a bit about migration and absolutely that is, you know, uh, more people moving to Australia, more desire for dwellings. But we've got internal demographics, right? The kid who's 20, um, when they've, uh, for example, got a partner and they want kids in 10, 15 years time, you know, that's, um, they're going to, want housing stock for example yeah. and so um you also highlighted a big issue with our um current property market is that you know people um often don't downsize right so you know we've got a very uh, lack of houses that suit families for example we haven't got enough in our country um but people um you know what we need to people is move down and downsize out and they're not doing it until the surviving partner dies and you know from my understanding simon if, if a couple gets to their 60s um you know, it's likely that one of them is probably going to live into their 90s. Is that sort of your understanding of, you know, life expectancies once people get to live into their 60s? Absolutely. And the richer the couple is, um, the longer they will live, statistically speaking. Mm. Um, so we pretty much need to expect that the whole downsizing um, takes a while to, to take place. But with this massive housing shortage that we have at the moment, um, and I'm playing uh, policy forecasting here, um, we'll see lots and lots of policies that will try to um, optimize the current housing stock, meaning you'll see more and more policy that um, incentivizes um, people to downsize. You'll see more and more policies that de-incentivizes people from having a short-term rental, your Airbnb type of property. Um, you'll see probably massive, massive tax hikes on anything that smells like a holiday home that is only occupied for a couple of weeks um, per year. So I'd expect all of those things to creep up uh, bit by bit, uh, make it uh, you know, a bit more intense with every um, election cycle. Um, th that's the policy guessing game that you want to do in the background when you try mm. to think about um, what um, investment property might be, might be good for you. So Simon, what are some of the um, you know, key trends? Like when someone's looking at the property market, um, um, obviously, they want to make sure that they're buying an asset that really suits the demographics, right? So, you know, if you've got a lot of people entering the family stage and you've got a house that, um, you know, suits them and there's a lot of people wanting to upgrade into those properties, that's a great thing. But, um, or for example, you've got an apartment and the market's shifting towards families and none of your families want apartments, for example, in this situation, that's maybe not great demographics for that type of a place. So, but what are some of the other trends? Like, uh, migration or working from home? Like what are some of the other trends that people should be watching when they're, they're looking at the property market? Uh, exactly. Well, let's start with migration. That's the obvious big topic. Um, the more people, the more demand for property. Uh, but migrants uh, tend to fall into one of two categories only. They're either international students. So these are people 18 to 22, 23 years of age. So young people. Um, and they all, the international students, they all know one address in Australia. That's the address of their university or their TAFE or whatever it is. And so they will move as close as possible to that one address that they know. And 
they tend to occupy um, a one bedroom. Maybe they share an apartment with somebody, so it's a two bedroom. They might move to a purpose-built student um, accommodation, but they are all inner city apartment dwellers, essentially. Um, so they are super, super condensed um, geographically. So, and we will now be seeing in this year, we will see record high migration intake, largely driven also by international students. We know where they're going. Inner city market is international students. These are people, even though they might come from rich families, that are not going to splurge on property. Mm -hmm. They try to keep costs reasonably down. Yeah. Um, that's happening. Also, migration um, is young, skilled migrants. These are 24, 25 to 39-year-olds. Um, almost all migration in Australia, about 85% of thereabouts, are 18 to 39. These are young people. These are not families that come to Australia as a whole. Um, so that means inner city dwellers, because they still move to jobs overwhelmingly that are in the inner city. Yes, of course, we try to get rural, regional migration happening because there are huge skills, sh skills shortages in the agricultural sector, in the smaller towns. Uh, but overwhelmingly, migration feeds into the top three cities in, in Australia. So these apartment markets were, of course, soft during COVID because we essentially kicked young migrants out. We, saw, we told them that uh, no financial assistance was going to be extended to them, so they left. But that was a temporary, te temporary problem um, that is now filling up again. So the inner city market will be fine in a sense, but it at the same time gets weakened because you have the big millennial cohort leaving the inner city apartments because they need family-sized homes. And then the next generation that leaves mom and dad's uh, houses now to move, go to uni, and they're only a small generation. So they alone aren't enough to make up for the loss of millennials in the inner city. Mm. But now that we are moving into a phase of uh, record high migration intake, even the inner city apartment markets should be fine. That's just what demographic um, suggests. And really they're fine because we didn't build enough houses over the last uh, 20 uh, odd years, uh, to, <laughs> to, to be quite honest. Uh, so these are two drivers. Um, that's the migration driver. Then you spoke about working from home. What working from home really did is um, that it widened the geography that people are willing to live in. Um, because people or most people don't work from home all the time. Most people still go to the office sometime, maybe once, maybe twice a week. Uh, but when you are only going to the office occasionally, all of a sudden, more and more people are willing to do an extreme commute. And it is absolutely comical on maps to see that everything within a two hour drive time radius of our capital cities grew. People are willing to commute that far, but not further. If you go to a town that's uh, two hours, 15 minutes away, nobody's moving there. It yeah. is hilarious to see. Um, and so that trend will stay. When we talk about, um, when we talk about working from home as a, as a phenomenon, um, is this just something that will pass? No, it won't. Um, there's, you, you'll see lots of articles every week uh, of, a, of a boss that says it's time to go back to the office. Um, but it's not really the time for the bosses to dictate what is going to happen because we do have a skills shortage in Australia that is baked into the demographic pie that will persist for the next 10 years. So it will be workers calling the shots and workers want to work from home more. 
They want to spend more time with their family. They want to cut down on the soul-destroying um, commute. Um, so always think that the hybrid approach will be the future mm -hmm. and think that we are within the hybrid approach. Working from home will win out a bit over working uh, from the office. Simon, I guess Australia's got a few challenges, right? We've got, um, you know, some super cities. We haven't got lots and lots of million um, people cities, right? Um, and we're also a knowledge sort of economy. Um, remember, we were having a uh, a coffee down at Burke Street Bakery in the city a few years ago, and um, you sort of enlightened me a little bit around the power of um, our movement to a service-based economy and, and the knowledge work. It's like, how is that, um, why is that so important to, you know, understanding our sort of, um, how are prisoners, I guess, to, to living close to our capital cities? Yeah, um, yeah, ex excellent point. So the whole world of work uh, changed. In the 60s, we all had manufacturing jobs um, in Australia. These are jobs that are clustered um, in a couple of industrial cities. They're clustered on the urban fringe um, thereabouts. But then bit by bit, um, those jobs got got automated, um, got a bit, got, got outsourced as well. Um, but we transition into a knowledge economy, meaning more and more computer-based, laptop-based jobs. And those jobs, um, we traditionally clustered them in office towers. And all of those workers, the banker, benefited being next to the accountant, being next to the IT company, uh, next to the lawyers. And this world of uh, work in a knowledge economy uh, really wants a CBD that is as tightly clustered as humanly possible. Each and every single job benefits from this clustering effect. That is the jobs, not the workers. The workers hate it because they need to either pay a premium to live close to the city, um, and more and more people you know, are willing to pay this premium, so prices go up massively, uh, and the poor people have to live further away. So that doesn't really work um, out all that well. And so that, that's what we were stuck with, though. In theory, you could solve this problem uh, by moving those um, by moving away from a single CBD model, where you say a city like Melbourne, a city like Sydney operates on a single job center, and instead we build multiple job centers. And all of those urban plans of your city, whatever your city is, has exactly those things um, written down. Uh, but they only work if you kind of enforce them, if you tell them this is your healthcare CBD. This is your IT CBD. This is your finance CBD. And then, as if this wasn't hard enough to essentially force companies to move to the right CBD, these CBDs need to be interconnected in a really fast and efficient way with roads and rails. Um, and you see where all those challenges come from there. You can write all those nice uh, CBDs onto your maps as a planner, but you have no way of enforcing this because we don't live in a Chinese-style um, country where you can just force companies to do something. Um, so probably at around three and a half to four million people, our cities reached um, a bit of a breaking point where the single CBD model stops working, where it's just you have too much population moving into the city in the morning commuting out of the city at nighttime, they stop working. So we now, if we want to have a Melbourne, a Sydney, continue to work as a city, um, you need to double down on those secondary CBDs. And that's what people are doing, trying to do now, planners. It is absolutely difficult. Um, but that means, of course, 
if you were a bit switched on and you think about, um, you know, the easy commute to those secondary CBDs, these will be particularly interesting um, for certain people because ultimately this is where cities need to go. Melbourne and Sydney can't function at 5 million, close to 6 million people soon um, with a single CBD. It's impossible, utterly impossible. Um, so you know where urban planning um, will, will take us to. And at the moment, of course, we're very happy that we have a bit of less uh, commuting happening because of working from home. So in a sense, all those CBDs got a bit of a breathing space. It is, of course, an absolute catastrophe for anyone who runs a cafe um, in, in a CBD at the moment or people that are invested, uh, that invested billions of dollars into office towers. Mm. Uh, they are a bit annoyed by vacancy rates. I'm just a humble demographer. I can just talk about this. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't phase me. But in the long run, of course, um, remember, even though more and more people in relative terms work from home on any given day, a city that grows at 100,000 people plus per year, um, eventually CBD will fill up just fine and will, will absolutely overflow and will be completely dysfunctional again. Um, so then we need to really be smart about, um, you know, Melbourne is doing the suburban rail loop, a thing they should have done 50 years ago. Mm. Um, and now it's only done. It's, it's, it's not too late. It's never too late, but it needs to be done now, and it needs to uh, fight uh, through lots of lots of um, le uh, you know legal hurdles. Um, because if you build infrastructure into a developed, already developed city, that's dumb. It's always easier to build infrastructure on a greenfield site on mm. the urban fringe. So, I mean, from my observations, it's really hard to us to create another Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane, right? But we are definitely going to be growing our population over the next 10, 20, 30 years, right? Um, through our good demographics, but also um, with importing lots of people in their 20s and 30s, as you said before, and um, and then them having families and then their kids having families, et cetera. Um, yeah. But we're not going to create big cities. You know, if anything, we're going to try to make our Sydneys and Melbournes and, and Brisbane work better, right? Um, and maybe some type of train link to get into these cities, um, to, to make it a bit faster, et cetera. Um, is that sort of how you imagine, you know, our, our country to grow is just through, you know, even doubling down on our cities and not creating new cities? Well, uh, let's, let's be quite honest. Let's, let's just play, play a game here. Let's say you are the, um, you know, the, the one major planning authority. Australia is going to double in the next 65 years. That's not, it sounds like a long time, but it's not. Um, and so you say, well, how do we double the population in 65 years? Are we just saying every city needs to have twice as many people? No, that's a dumb approach. It really means that we need to, we need to create more major cities. So that means um, from a structural perspective, it means you'd want to see smaller cities have higher growth rates mm. than big cities. That means um, uh, a Newcastle should grow at a much faster rate than Sydney. Geelong, Bendigo, Ballarat should grow at much higher rates than Melbourne. What new cities could we build? How big could a Townsville get? How big could all those lifestyle destinations around uh, the East Coast be? If we decide that most of the uh, you know new 26 million people over the next 60 odd years uh, live along the East Coast, then you need to have a major uh, rail link running across the whole East Coast. That that's absolutely necessary if you wanted that approach. At the very least, we need to have within each state, we need to have high-speed rail from the um, major CBD of the big city to all those major secondary cities. 
that needs to happen. It needs to happen eventually. And in infrastructure, we say if it needs to be built um, ever, it needs to be built now um, because then it's cheaper. Mm. We need to do forward uh, thinking. Um, it's it's always easy to be a bit cynical about politics and say we never do forward thinking. We're just after the next election cycle or so. But Australia has proven often enough that it is capable of long-term planning. The best example always is the superannuation scheme, an absolutely ingenious um, um, policy that understands demographics, that understands that we are growing old as a country even if we get more and more migrants in. And we therefore need to find a way that everybody pays for their own retirement. And that's what superannuation is uh, at its base. It makes sure that you pay for your own retirement and that you don't rely on the pension scheme, mm -hmm. which is everybody paying for your retirement. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a history. We have a good track record yeah. uh, of long-term policy. And I'd hope a bit more of this uh, would uh, enter the world of population uh, planning. So Simon, on the um, other points to... For people sort of to track with demographics, I mean, an interesting one's interstate migration, right? Um, you know, a lot of people are leaving New South Wales um, and moving to to Queensland, etc. What are some of some other little quirks, I guess, when people are studying what people are doing that um, you think is really important to understanding the future of property? Yeah. So, so interstate migration is, of course, simply uh, the the internal population reshuffling, um, and so. The reason why New South Wales is always bleeding population, losing population to the rest of the state, is not because it is a godforsaken hellhole uh, that you want to get rid of. It has to do with the way that um, overseas migration works. Migrants from overseas have absolutely no idea about Australia. They know the opera house from the from the pictures. They maybe know uh, the the tennis uh, from uh, from you know the Australian Open. That's about it. They know nothing. Um, but so they therefore move into Sydney first. That's the city with the biggest uh, brand. And then after a couple of years in the in the country, they understand how the country works. They see more job offerings, maybe in Queensland, maybe in, in Melbourne, wherever it is. And they then move accordingly. So the launchpad suburb or the launchpad state that is New South Wales will always lose population to the rest. And... And we see this on a micro scale in every city. Every city has a couple of suburbs that are launch pad suburbs. This is where all the new migrants move into. Mm -hmm. In Melbourne, for example, Swanston Street is all those new, it's, it's dominated by new migrants. They live there and then they do work, they study a bit. Um, and, but after a couple of years, um, they understand how the country works. And then they start behaving like everyone else on the Australian housing market. And they then essentially purely segregate based on income. Um, not based on ethnicity. Uh, we segregate our population in a rather strict way in Australia, but it has nothing to do with, uh, um, you know, ethnic discrimination. It's purely around uh, money. So with our migration uh, moving here each year, so, I mean, in terms of what your expectations is over the next sort of five years and um, where are they coming from um, and how much of these are actually skilled migrations that are getting jobs um, and then basically looking to buy homes uh, for families. Yeah, um, so migration over the next five years will be absolutely bonkers. Uh, in the next um, five years, we will grow through net overseas migration alone by one and a half million people. That is uh, one Adelaide plus uh, some change in just five years. That is huge. So of course, all of those people need to be housed. Um, and since migrants tend to be young, they need uh, relatively 
large amounts of dwellings because you'll have maybe one and a half to two people per dwelling rather than a family where you have two and a half people per dwelling. Um, so you need lots of dwellings. Um, that's the first observation. Um, this year we'll see record migration intake into Australia in net terms. Uh, we will grow by 400,000 people from overseas. The, the previous record was 300,000 people in 2008, mm -hmm. if you're keeping track. Um, so that's that's massive. Um, where will those people move to? Well, the large a large chunk are international students. They will move next to uh, the unis. So unis are, are booming. That's the way of for them to make money. And um, we will always hand out visas to international students, essentially without a cap, uh, because they are a crazy cash cow. It is mm -hmm. ludicrous how much money we make with each individual international student. They pay arm and leg for their education. Um, they pay lots and lots of fees for, for rent. Um, they create tourism by mom and dad visiting them or their friends visiting them. Um, by definition, after they graduate, they are educated to the level that we want them to be educated. And so when one in six international students stays on to become a permanent migrant, we have them educated to the right uh, level um, without having needed to pay for their first 23 years of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a baby in Australia um, and, you know, you, you raise them uh, to become a taxpayer, they are still a net uh, drawdown on the public uh, coffers, not so international migrants. Um, it's, it's quite ridiculous when you think about how financially lucrative it is to grow your population with migration and so we know that all those migrants at the moment very much cluster into the big cities so at the moment this whole narrative of decentralizing population um, is only driven by people that are already living in australia and that they decide to leave the um the big cities and move to the smaller cities that is the only thing that drives decentralization migration at the moment only feeds into the big cities and they might uh, choose to live elsewhere after a couple of, uh, of years, but we're not managing, we're not channeling uh, enough of the migration into the regions. Um, the regions wouldn't be all that unhappy with more people in theory because they have big skills shortages, but also now most regional towns have a housing shortage. So they want more workers, but they don't want more people, um, if you will, because they need to house them. Um, so everything in Australia, all those skills shortage stories, all those, um, you know, how do we grow our economy stories, they come back to housing. Mm -hmm. Housing is an absolutely unsolved cornerstone issue in Australia. Mm -hmm. And by now we'll see more and more political um, appetite in solving those housing issues. So the next couple of years, there'll be a lot of um, regulatory changes coming our way, uh, simply because the sheer... Um, order of magnitude of change now absolutely forbids uh, that the status quo continues. So as property investors, that means you need to be very um, switched on, very much tapped into current uh, changes so that you can read uh, the, the signs of the times just right. So Simon, um, I mean, absolutely. I think understanding the migration changes, I mean, you've already um, hit the nail on the head. I can see this coming as well. Um, lots of uh, regulation change around housing policies um, is absolutely going to happen to downsizers, to help first home buyers, to, um, I guess, encourage in our regions, encourage more housing supply in the first place, you know, things like build to rent, etc. Um, what's some of the, the trends that you're sort of watching at the moment with demographics that 
um, yeah, I guess are quite interesting for you to sort of watch over the next five years. Well, my big thing that I have on my radar, I had it on my radar for a couple of years, and I think it is going to happen over the next couple of years, probably even this year, is we're going to take massive powers away from local government. We're going to refocus power, planning power um, in the states. The states will not allow local government areas to veto all that many housing projects that they've done in the past. So it's a structural issue is that as a local government area, as a local planner, a, a local official, you should always block every development that comes your way simply because somebody will hate it. And if it's really important, VCAT in Victoria, NCAT in, in, in New South Wales, they will push it through anyways. And you can wash your hands uh, clean and say, hey, the evil bureaucrats did it. Um, I would say think that your local government area will lose powers, but that they will be handed very strict housing targets from their state governments. And if they uh, they get punished in some way, uh, if they don't fit those targets, I'm, I'm seeing this as a real, real possibility. Um, this is slowly inching, uh, inching our way. And yeah, think that your local government areas are going to be weaker. That means that more developments should be able to be pushed through faster. So I think this is the um, the NIMBY are going to beat the uh, the YIMBY are going to beat the NIMBY. So the you know one of the big things that has been supporting our property prices is the underdevelopment in areas that people really want to live. We've built houses and apartments in little uh, in pockets, um, and we we haven't built any new housing stock or you know apartments in other pockets, for example. And I think you're right. I think there's, there's a rental crisis, there's a housing unaffordability crisis, and um, we can't rely on the local governments to deliver that housing because, they, like you said, they're not delivering it because they know that the voters uh, don't want it. Um, and so what you're sort of, sort of just suggesting here is that um, it's not going to be a choice for them anymore. The state government are going to enforce it um, and set big um, targets on individual councils and uh, rather than them just, for example, undersupplying um, dwellings for the Australian people. So I absolutely can see that happening as well. And um, you know, it's not going to be across all of our suburbs, but, you know, in particular around train stations and good infrastructure links and our busy roads and our main roads. These are the areas that councils are, are likely going to have to take it on the chin. And, and when people look at suburbs today, they're going to have to say, well, I know they haven't built anything in these suburbs in the past, but we can't rely on the NIMBYs. Um, you know, winning over the next few decades. I think there's going to be changes in these suburbs. So um, I'm watching that just as much as you, Simon. I think it's very interesting. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Simon. I think we'll definitely get you on in future episodes. Um, demographics are a huge part of the property market. And uh, the more that I learn about housing formation and um, what's happening when people get divorced and kids and people li living longer, um, all of these things impact the property market more than people expect. So thanks for coming on, Simon. It's been a big pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. 
That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax, or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.